0: Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up-to-date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by sponsors like Johnsonville Foods, SwineWeb.com, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth, and Swine Tech, the award-winning creator of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how you can reduce piglet crushing and your overall pre-winning mortalities by nearly 25%, visit swinetechnologies.com. Welcome
1: to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Roda, your host for today's episode. Today, We're going to be talking about the evolution of electronic sow feeding and the dawn of Prop 12. Joining us is Robert Drew, the group housing specialist with Maximus and author of Pigtails from Across the Pond. Thanks for joining us today, Robert.
2: Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Thanks for asking me on.
1: So to start things off, I'd really like to know a bit more about how you got involved with the swine
2: industry. Well, um, that's a great question. Uh, I hope your listeners are going to be able to pick through my somewhat hybrid accent now, but you can probably tell that I wasn't originally from here. Um, I was raised on a mixed arable and pig farm in the UK. Uh, my grandfather had some pigs there, and when I was eight years old, he took me to uh, one of his friends, and I had three pregnant gills to pick from, and I, I picked the one that had the most pigs and Basically, never looked back from there and ended up with 25 sows when I was in high school. So I went to school smelling of pigs and that that was the start of it all. Um, I I basically uh, did did some college work, went to a couple of different colleges, studied pigs uh, in the early 1980s. And eventually arrived over in the U.S. uh, in 1993 uh, to work with outdoor sows. Um, That might be a podcast for another day. Um, so I've been here nearly uh, 30 years now. Uh, I became a citizen of the U.S. in uh, September of last year. Um, and I worked in sow production most of my career, Matthew. Um, 30,000 sows uh, in Colorado back in the 1990s is where I really got started. Um, but then I got distracted with some quality management system work and a lot of welfare issues come up. Uh, at that time. So I was doing some auditing and consulting um, before I moved into equipment sales. Um, But then I've mainly focused on uh, predominantly electronic sow feeding now uh, for the last five years.
1: And that's where we really want to get this thing kicked off. What is electric sow feeding? And who started it? Where did it all begin? It sounds like you were pretty, pretty present when all this started to kick off over in Europe. What was that all like?
2: Um, It was interesting. So, I mean, electronic sow feeding, I mean, basically, it's a way to precisely feed individual sows that are kept in groups um, using RFID or radio frequency identification um, to identify that sow when it feeds. And and it really, you can go back to the, the early 1970s, really, which Probably a young man like you won't be able to remember um, Saturday Night Fever and when discos were all the rage. So it's probably well before your time. (laughs) Um, But if I take you back to that time, probably around about 1977, uh, Cow Code was introduced. And Cow Code was really electronic individual management of cows. Uh, And by about 1980, that became really popular in uh, dairy herds and in milken parlours um, in Europe. So yeah, this was European technology um, and it started with uh, sows and then somewhere around about 1982, it, it jumped from, sow, uh, from cows and went to sows. Um, and I don't know if you uh, had any experience or seen the big collars that were on the uh, necks of the, of the cows back in those days. Um, that was in the early, early 80s and there was a, another system after after Cow Code that came around in about 1983 called Pork Code, obviously pork being the pork part of it. Uh, that was branded, and then a little later, a company called Hyundai became one of the first uh, manufacturers of electronic sow feeders. That was one of the earliest models, and so really, Matthew, that was the, that was the birth of the electronic sow feeder and was the start of electronic individual management of sows uh, as we know it today.
1: What was that What was that like using them collars, especially in pigs? I wouldn't imagine that pigs liked wearing those too much.
2: Very accurate. Um, well, when I think back now, um, it's kind of a little bit mind-blown as to what it was, because obviously when you're doing something and living it, you don't really know what you're experiencing. But when you look back... Um, it, it was really cumbersome, really. Um, wearing the collars. Um, it was really stressful on a lot of the animals and stressful on the people as well. Um, you know, there it was a lot of frustrations back in those early days. And one of the biggest ones was, was the collars actually getting lost because a sow's neck obviously is not conducive to having a, a collar on it, like almost like a seatbelt. Um, and back in those early days, one of the things that we used to see, we had the had the pigs in big open straw yards, and you, you would come in, and there would be collars missing, and it's like, okay, now we've got to find a collar. So we'd be going around with with, with forks, pitchforks, and stuff, and looking in the straw to find the collars. And there was many times when we actually found the collar actually in the electronic sow feeder because the sows learn if they picked that collar up and took it into the station and dropped it in, all of a sudden Feeder pad, which sounds hard to believe, but you know, that was kind of what happened. Um, but the systems back then were, they were very much time pressured and they favored the more aggressive sow. Um, so probably about the late 80s, 88, 89, the air uh, transponders came out, which is kind of what we see today and they replaced the neck collars. Um, the group sizes back then, they were typically 40 sows that would feed um, in that 24 hour period. Um, But these were all um, front, they they weren't front exit stations like you have typically seen in the last 20 years in the US. They were all, people would walk in and back out. Um, And that system favored um, really 80% of the animals, but it didn't cater for all the animals in the pen. Um, But obviously smaller farms in Europe, you know, they had they had multiple weeks of sows um, that were mixed together, and those animals had to be sorted out. Um, so those early systems, Matthew, in hindsight, they were a disaster, uh, which put a lot of people off, but they were a great learning experience, and, and having been part of that has certainly helped me uh, in the last uh, 15 years, anyhow. So you kind of hit on that a little bit with the
1: ear transponders, but what i mean you you've described something that you said you know it was it was kind of a pain, but eventually it took off. What were the drivers that helped make that group housing and and e s f systems really start to to take off, especially over in Europe when everything kind of started
2: right um well when i when I worked my first one, so you know it was about eighty two eighty three when the, uh, when the system started to come in. So it was about 1985 when I worked my first electronic sow feeding system. So they are very much the pioneering days back then. And, and basically it became popular because I had to. Uh, and when I say that, uh, it, it again goes back to legislations that were being passed. And as far as the UK went, um, no sows uh, were allowed to be housed in stalls in the UK from beginning of January 1999 Uh, but we're talking about uh, 1985 so they had plenty of time to phase out Um, some of the European companies um, or countries sorry such as Sweden they were even a little bit earlier they had to be out of stalls in Sweden by 1994 Um, so it was basically because we had to do something um, and no one likes to be told that they have to do something which is uh, interesting in what's developed in the U.S. In, in the last five to ten years with some of this group housing. Um, but there were some ramifications from that, and it basically shrunk the U.K. pig herd because a lot of people got out. Prices did tank at that point as well. But, you know, in, in about 1996 uh, to 2019, the U.K. herd was almost cut in half from between 800 thousand to a million sows down to under 400,000 sows. So a lot of people got out. Uh, Some people put in the electronic sow feed and other forms of housing other than stalls. Um, But it actually drove the UK industry outside. Uh, When I say outside, that means, you know, outdoor pig farms, which is what I got into. Um, And today there's almost 50% of the UK herd is actually outside um, but that then again still creates issues because there's only so much land to go around. You know, obviously UK, the UK fits into Texas. That kind of puts it in perspective. Um, so what we saw, Matthew, really were these alternative, alternative South Housing systems for the stalls and tethers that we were basically being forced to do. And they were being driven by, you know, the legislation, regulations, free trade, and basically a free market system way more than any science. Um, and we'll probably get on to that a little bit when we talk about the Prop 12 later, Matt.
1: Yes. And I think something to kind of dive into before we get there would be this whole back exit and front exit stalls. Because you said they started with the back exit. Then NeedApp came around with the front exit. Now Maximus is back to the back exit. So could you take us through the progression of why back exit? Why then front exit? Now, why are we back to back exit again?
2: Very good question. Um, so basically, um, as I explained earlier on, you know, we we talked about the uh, initial problems that we had with the backout stations. Um, at that point, we were we were forty sows to one station on a backout station. So basically, over there in Europe, you you mentioned App, There were some other uh, companies as well. Shower. Um, you had Big Dutchman, um, MPS Agri some of those companies um, basically developed what we call the conventional or the front exit station. And that came in somewhere around about the late 1980s, about 88, 89. Um, and basically what that did for the European producers, uh, it eliminated the uh, sorting of pigs and it eliminated the aggression at the entrance to the station. Um, the biggest thing, thing that that it came around through that was the fact that we suddenly had to train animals um and when i say train animals they obviously had to learn to go in push through gates in many cases and then walk out forwards um that caused a few issues on its own um you know would push all the sows to the entrance side would gradually work them through with uh with the feed and when we did that um uh, I developed a term known as a tax collector and so the tax collector would be the pig that you put through and it wanted to get back to go through again and it would just stand there and bite every sow that came out of the front exit station so it it didn't totally eliminate aggression when it comes to training um and so eventually you know it became from the equipment standpoint um whose, whose station could feed the most right because obviously the the more pigs you got through a station, the uh, the more uh, it reduced the cost per sow. And so, some of the stations, even today, you know, uh, the claims were going around of how many could you get through a station, and it, it was up to eighty sows going through a single station um, in a day. And, and again, that had its compromises, and still does have have its compromises because it, it takes probably sixteen to eighteen hours of feeding, and that system is is. Usually good for the more aggressive sow, but as you get into that feeding period of 24 hours, because it resets after 24 hours, those more timid sows after 16, 18 hours that haven't fed, you'll find that those more aggressive sows are ready to go through again. So, you know, there's a compromise with putting a lot of sows on a single station. Um, and I always say that ESF, you know, really electronic sow feeding. It's not about the sows that eat. It's about the sows that don't eat. And I've said that many times when I'm talking to people, that they need to realize that. Um, What the companies did, though, Matthew, really was they added water. They added feed bowls uh, that were basically removed. They closed troughs. They basically let the next sow push the sow out that was already eaten, so it wasn't exactly welfare-friendly, and it was all to do with throughput. So by doing that, they were getting more sales through. You add water, it's like eating dry crackers, right? You eat dry crackers and eventually you have to have a drink. So they speeded everything up and they made front exit stations. And the manufacturers were kind of rubbing their hands at this point because it gave them the opportunity to add more bells and whistles, right? So all of a sudden, we've got a front exit station. So how do we make that work? So now we're adding sensors, we're adding air compressors, we're adding separation so we can separate off groups of sows. Um, we had some companies even even added weigh scales, and we've added a lot more moving parts. So basically, for the people to manage, there's potentially more things to go wrong. And that eventually came over to the US. So, you know, where it worked well in a European style farm, where, you know, you might have the family taking care of the farm, once it got introduced in the early 2000s, Um, it's become evident, I think, over the last 10 to 15 years that it's really the top producers that have got maybe higher quality and more stable workforces that have been more successful with the front-exit ESF. And the training of animals, additional labor, really started to become a bit of an Achilles' heel for the front-exit stations, whereas these back-exit stations, which were like the original ones, Um, they were simpler. There was less maintenance. There still is less maintenance. Um, And in practice, it reduces the labor for the training because it's really a a self-learned system by the pigs. And um, the pigs transition into it rather than you actually having to go and work with them to train them. Um, The animal really does the work for you. So basically, Matthew, you know, these systems, um, the backhouse systems still allow for all the data capture and the individual feeding. Uh, which is important, but, uh, it, they work on, on smaller static pens of 60 compared to the, the front exits, which tend to be on the dynamic groups, which is multiple weeks worth of size in big pens of 300. And, um, you know, that's made a, uh, made it more complicated for the people, uh, that are running the systems.
1: Gotcha. And now I've had the opportunity to work with some of the front exit, some of the back exit, and a pig is much more likely to want to go backwards than forwards. It feels whenever they're moving, so <laughs> I can definitely see how they learn that a lot. Yeah,
2: quicker.
1: exactly. So let's transition to Prop Twelve. All right, now we've we've kind of got a good background on on what is ESF and what things might look like in the U.S. But Prop Twelve, what is it, and what are some of the, the details that go with that?
2: So, Prop 12, um, or Proposition 12, was a, was a California uh, ballot proposition um, in the state's November 2018 election. And it was basically self titled the Prevention of Cruelty to Farm Animals Act. And that measure passed um, by 63 to 37% by the, the state of California. Um, and the proposition. Establish some new requirements on the farmers to provide more space for egg laying hens, uh, more space for breeding sows, and more space for veal cl- uh, calves that were raised for veal. Um, so, the, the California businesses um, uh, are going to be ban or are banning, banned from selling eggs or uncooked pork or veal that comes from animals that are housed uh, in that way that don't meet the requirement, and uh, that comes into effect um, January the 1st, 2022. Um, Prop 12, basically, is a follow-up to Proposition 2. Uh, That that was done in in 2008, and that, again, was passed, but it it was considered more a failure um, in in that they didn't provide uh, any space requirements Rather, it was on the size restrictions that were based on animal behaviour, and in this case, pregnant pigs. So, you know, if if you look at that language, it basically said uh, pigs that uh, should not be confined in a manner that does not allow them to turn around freely, lie down, stand up, and fully extend their limbs. Um, So the new Prop 12 now has square footage basically written into the rules um so you know I, I was kind of thinking about this when I was on my way back from the UK a couple of weeks ago I can I can actually testify that Delta Airlines actually now has met proposition 12 standards because I, I'm six foot five and I found myself on on a plane that held 300 people and, and they actually only had 40 passengers on board so um that uh, that qualified for prop 12 right now at De- uh, delta although i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure that unlike the pig producers there's uh, the government has, has helping uh helping delta with that so um so this square footage thing is is the big change this this 24 square foot number so i i, I guess if you want to go into why 24 square feet right um yeah, that'd be great <laughs> I, I look at it and it's okay. Someone's pulled up 24 square feet. Where did they get that from? Um, you look at the EU standard in Europe. So in, in Europe, it, it's 2.25 metres squared for a sow, um, which is, if you calculate it out, 24 square feet of usable space. Um, they ask for 18 square feet of usable space for gills. Um, so... I'm not sure they come up with that, but where do you start calculating that? I mean, for example, with the maximum CSF, we mix sows and gills together in the same pen. So, you know, how big is your sow? You know, that would be one thing I'd throw out there. We all know a sow can be £350 or it could be £500. That really isn't taken into consideration um, with this 24 square feet. Um, with, the, with the rear exit ESF that I'm working with now with Maximus and these numbers I'm, I'm comfortable with now over the years I've done this. I believe that 20 square feet is a minimum. Um, the front exit ESF, uh, because you have typically the separation in to separate off animals that are going into, into Pharaoh because there's different groups mixed together, 22 and a half square feet is a number that I've always worked with. So, to say is 24 square feet better, I'm not really sure. I can say that it is. But, I mean, history tells me that, that less is not good. So, less than 20 or less than 22 is not good. Um, but at the end of the day, that's based on what I've seen. And sometimes, you know, people are always going to say, well, where's your data? And, you know, after being in the group housing and stuff now for 30 years, I sometimes have to come back with a comment that it's the experience behind the eyes. It's what I've watched and it's what I've seen for the last 30 years. Um, and I believe if producers uh, meet those stock and density numbers, they design the pen right, they provide feed, they provide water, air, good stockmanship, and group housing um, with ESF works well. But, I mean, if the real Matthew is going to be 24 square feet, Um, then that's the rule. And so I'm not sure there is science to support the need for that extra space. Um, But the problem is if we tell a farmer to put 60 in a pen, we go back in a month, the chances are there's 70 in the pen. And, you know, whereas a stall, you've got uh, one side, one stall. A pen is very ambiguous to the number of pigs it's going to hold So I think that becomes the issue with a pen against the stall scenario. If it's going to be 24 square feet for these Prop 12 compliances, um, are they going to be upheld within a system um, where there's what I would call space flexibility, which is uh, what group has and has, Matthew? So, yeah, it's a hard one to answer. I mean, I think the 24 then basically has been driven by what the European standard has been.
1: So when we look at when we look at Prop 12 compliance and meeting some of them space requirements and everything else that kind of goes into the auditing and we're not probably sure exactly what that's going to look like at the very end. How does how does an ESF help make a transition to meeting Prop 12 easier than if you weren't using an ESF?
2: Um, well you know basically when you when you look at pig husbandry or pig farming. I mean, it's the economic forces that drive the industry, right? Uh, and, you know, today, I, I think Prop 12 still has more questions than it does answers, unfortunately. I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, you know, what's the cost of the producer? Uh, what's the cost of the customer and can, can they both afford it? Um, you know, there's a lot of people that struggle to put food on the table today and, Um, You know, if that's going to be the case and producers are uh, going to be spending a lot of money, then obviously they have to see their return on that. And that eventually gets passed down ultimately to the producer, uh, to the customer. Um, You know, my concern is, is going to be, is are people going to be able to stick to the compliance rules of the square footage other than, I mean... It's no good doing it for for the one day the auditor is there and then not for the other three hundred and sixty-four, right? And I've, I I have seen that before where systems are set up and we know we have the auditor coming, so today we're going to do it right. So that to me kind of defeats the purpose. And then you also have to look beyond what they're asking today. You know, one of the things over in Europe was that you had to add enrichment to the pen. Well. So, what does enrichment mean? Well, you know, I've been in farms over in Europe where enrichment is putting some straw or some kind of, you know, chewable material in the in the pen for the animal to to eat on, and it's and it's meaningless meaningless quantities of straw, and and it's a slatted barn. So, you know, my position, Matthew, really is that you know we need to give the consumers choice um but on the flip side of it they should be made to pay for more uh, if they're given more and you know I, I think this is going to unfold and it's took 20 30 years of, of having esf in the us um, I, I think it can play a role uh, esf is a you know it's a great tool um it's uh, as good as the people that are really running the system but it plays a role but you know, you, you have to you have to look beyond the dollar figure that you're going to get for your return and figure out how am I going to run this? Because it's not a one size fits all situation with ESF. It does not suit everybody.
1: For sure. And it is it is going to be interesting to see how pork prices or uncork, uncooked pork prices might change from all this and how consumption from the lower class to the middle class and the upper class might change from all this i'm hoping we don't alienate our consumer by by some of this stuff over in california but i guess only time will tell
2: yeah yeah exactly i mean you're right it's gonna it's gonna take time everybody right now is uh, we've had a lot more inquiries here in the last six months about proposition 12 and how can we get it done and do we use pre access stalls with electronic soap feed and do user combination. We're, we're kind of going into some uncharted territory like we were with ESF 25 years ago. And I don't think we've cracked ESF as an industry today. Anyhow, it clearly needs a more of a middle of the road solution, um, to, to get that done.
1: I do think that the positive side to all of this is that there are going to be some producers out there who are well equipped to go provide a completely different segment to the market on uh on pork protein. And and maybe this provides some opportunity for differentiation. And
2: yeah, it, it does. See how do
1: we look at this the positive way?
2: Yep, yeah, it, it, it does. And that's the one thing with the uh, the Maximus on the on the back out walk-in, back-out station, Um, I I sometimes liken that a little bit. When that first happened, when I first saw that, that was probably about six or seven years ago. And there's there's others that have copied it. So some of the front exit station guys have now copied the back-out station theory. And when I first saw it, I would say it was a little bit like putting a Rolls-Royce engine on a Model T Ford chassis. (laughs) <laughs> because I I, I I literally looked at that thing and said, "Well, this thing's not going to work." But I mean, back in back in seventy five, I remember my father paying 200 dollars for a calculator. Well, you know, today a calculator is, is five dollars. So as the as the cost of electronics got cheaper, things become possible. And so we're looking for that simplicity meets technology. We're trying to get that balance.
1: Gotcha. So to wrap things up here, first off, thanks so much for being a part of this but what's one golden nugget that you might be able to share with the uh listeners and i guess we're starting to
2: call it a golden chop now um yeah 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 your golden nugget um well you know i, I guess the one thing that i've seen over the years now um it, it with group housing it's more than just feeding the sow um i always say this and it doesn't matter who i'm working for. And uh, I, I have a collection of hats and shirts from various companies. And, and so it's more than just feeding the pig because they all feed a pig. So you have to kind of pick through it a little bit. And it was one of the things with Maximus, which is better known really for the Maximus controller. Um, they have the ESF. They also have the software. So they have some integration in their solutions. And I think that can't be overlooked because you were doing more than just feeding a pig in a barn anymore. Um, so I think the thing that holds true to me is that people are the key, um, really, because people are everything. Uh, and with group housing, uh, I use the expression that when group housing is too simple, the sow is going to suffer. But then when it's too complex, the people become compromised. And then as a result, you know, your production suffers. So. We have to find that balance that, that fits the industry. I think we're on the way to doing that. Um, and so there's not really a one size fits all solution. But the bottom line is, uh, Matthew, you know, that there's no replacing good old fashioned stockmanship. And whatever your system, you have to have that.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you again for being a member and guest on the Popular Pig podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your time.
2: Uh, you're more than welcome, Matthew.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of popular pig we aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests therefore if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry for more information please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the Farrowing House. For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.